otherwise you well bobs cast members it's spoon chigeli so once again uh author of being a black springbok the tanda manana story and a resident here on the bobs cast we've got another special for you that's too back to back if you've been keeping up we interviewed brian habana uh, for Forbes magazine and that interview went up last week that was a great special Habana talking about his life as an entrepreneur now we've got another one for you it's Peter Bills author of a book you might have seen that was released last year it's called The Jersey The Secrets Behind the World's Most Successful Teams it has exclusive contributions from 90 rugby greats including Richie McCaw, Steve Hansen as well as Bowden Barrett. We have managed to chat to Peter Bills, the author of The Jersey. Obviously, the All Blacks being the most successful team in the world. But what do we know about Peter Bills? Peter Bills, who has reported on international rugby for more than 40 years, was given exclusive access to all the key figures in New Zealand rugby as he set out to understand the secrets behind the All Blacks' success. From Steve Hansen to Bowden Barrett, Richie McCaw to the late Sir Colin Meads, Peter Bills talked at length with over 90 people in New Zealand and around the world with intimate knowledge of what makes the All Blacks tick. This is a story of the first settlers and the originals who forged the All Blacks legacy right through to the modern times. It draws heavily on the contributions made by all New Zealanders, players, coaches, officials, supporters and those who have won the most recognized jersey in the world. Intrinsically, the jersey goes to the heart of the All Blacks' success. It's also an epic story of not just a rugby team, but a nation whose identities are inextricably linked. Additionally, the book debates a key question that is terrifying for any of their opponents. Could the All Blacks get any better? Here to tell us is Peter Bills. Peter do tell us how was the process of writing this here fascinating book it wasn't an easy exercise i have to tell you that originally they said yes then they said no then they said uh yes and they dithered and uh, came back and said well we think not and i said i think you should have another rethink anyway yeah. after about uh, 12 months or nine months they agreed and I went to New Zealand and lived there for five months to, to work on the book. What convinced them in the end um, to open themselves up like they did to you? I think what it was comes came down to the fact that there is a maturity at the heart of New Zealand rugby that, and a worldliness that perhaps wasn't there 10, 15 years ago. I think Steve Chu, the CEO, has been instrumental in leading New Zealand rugby into the the modern world and present day times. Years ago, they were very much behind the times and suspicious of everything and everybody. But yeah. Chu has really moved them forward and he's done a tremendous job there off the field. Um, and I think he was probably he was instrumental. I am certain in getting this over the line. Yeah, you you reckon that uh, a lot of a lot of countries still employ that KG approach, possibly to media, especially in a world where everything really is more exposed these days than it was at any other time in the past. Yes, I do. I mean, you're hundred percent right in what you say. I think there's still too much of this. Keep the media at bay keep everybody out well of course we'll have their money get get every last penny you can off the off the punters 
but we don't want them knowing anything and we don't want them hearing anything we don't want them seeing meeting the players and some of the banal tripe that is taught by modern day international rugby players is frankly an insult not just to them and their intelligence but to these unions it's definitely time that rugby union worldwide and many countries uh, opened up and got real about what is required in the modern media world. Yeah. Now, now, now Peter, um, you've authored, obviously, the jersey, the secrets behind the world's most successful team, but you've, you've also written uh, books called uh, International Rugby Union, the Illustrated History, as well as The Right Place at the Wrong Time, the autobiography of Corne Kricher, which, which I found very, very interesting and racking and rolling the modern history of international rugby. Safe to say that uh, you certainly love your rugby. Where, where does this love come from? Um, I could tell you almost the exact day that it, it dawned on me that I wanted to be a rugby writer, Sibu. I was at a rugby club that is the oldest club in the world, Blackheath Rugby Club in London. I was there one November afternoon. I'd watched Blackheath play Swansea, the big Welsh club, and they'd beaten them with two, beaten them with two drop goals. And afterwards, I and my mates were just trying to kick the this heavy, wet leather ball around the field in the dark. And I saw this tiny light up in the stand and I thought, what is that? And I went over and had a look and there was a guy talking into a telephone and writing his story from the match. And I thought, I was seven years old and I remember thinking, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. That's incredible. You didn't fancy, fancy yourself as a player at all? No, I figured out pretty early on it was an awful lot better to sit in the press box and criticise others than get your own head kicked in on the field. So I think that was a fairly straightforward decision. And I have to tell you, I don't think England missed um, the, 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 the great Faf de Dupree of uh, world rugby in an English sense. I don't think I would have managed it. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. You and me both, uh, I, I quickly figured that out myself, that I'd... I'd rather sit in the safety of the press box. Yeah, very much so. I think uh, these guys are fantastic performers, but they're incredibly tough people, not only physically, but mentally. The game today alarms me. It's a very, very physical game, overtly physical, I believe. And I think that down the road, we're going to have quite a lot of problems with things like uh, head injuries, players yeah. who played through concussion. And I think this will come back to haunt the game. I fear that will be the case in the future. Now, in, in, in your, your experience, I mean, uh, a vast experience of over 40 years, um, of writing in a certain era, which uh, let me term the old era for, for lack of a better term. Um, but how have you adapted to new era journalism where there's a lot of clickbaity type of reporting and players really expose themselves on things like Twitter and Instagram and that's where people really get their quotes now and, and no one really picks up the phone. Um, certainly very few people go across the world, spend five months uh, in, a, in a foreign land researching a book. Um, we, we're certainly living in, in a bygone era. Uh, how have you adapted to this new digital wave that we are all experiencing? Well, I think you just have to, don't you? You roll with it. Um, you're dead right. Again, what you say, there is no doubt. It's a different era. It's a different time. One of the things I miss more than anything, I think, and people of my era would say this uh, by the droves, is that 
you don't have the same relationships with the players that you used to have. I mean, many, many great players from the past I would count as personal friends and they've remained friends throughout our lives. We're still in touch. We don't see each other every week or every year by any means, but we're still in touch and there's that comradeship that Rugby Union in those days used to give to all sorts of people, people you met in the game, whether they're players, officials or what. And I think rugby's lost a lot from that. I really do. But in terms of the modern day, yeah, you have to just feed off uh, what you can. The press conferences, I find, are largely a waste of time because, as I say, players never say anything. They're coached to talk and say nothing. But occasionally on Twitter you find stuff and you have to be aware of social media. And I think maybe one good thing about it is that today the views of fans are brought into the equation far more than they ever were. And that's got to be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and just the, the, that relationship. Uh, in the past, I think journalists, um, certainly probably by the time you started um, writing about the sport, journalists could have a beer with uh, players or, or go to the dressing room without um, being met with incredulity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember managing to convince an Australian who was coaching Cardiff Rugby, rugby Club at the time, and they were a very good team uh, in those days, um, they were playing, I think, Clonethley uh, in, a, in a Welsh match and I managed to persuade him to let me go in the dressing room before and after the match. Mm. Um, it was fascinating and I wrote a, a very revealing piece. I remember about that, all the atmosphere and how players were winding themselves up. And But you wouldn't have a hope in hell of doing that today, of course. <laughs> no, that's, no that's at all. But it was a unique experience and people trusted you. I think that was probably the gist of it. They trusted you and you, you didn't break the trust. But uh, I think a lot of that is now uh, in the mists of time. Yeah, and I want to I want to get into the book. Um, a lot of uh, fascinating talking points uh, that the All Blacks here in South Africa, uh, which I'm sure you know, um, are, are very revered. Uh, and there are particular reasons for that because of our history and, and black people being um, ostracized from the mainstream game. Um, by the old apartheid government, um, they, they supported the, the visiting nations and they took particular affinity to the All Blacks because of the style of play that they had was very similar to how black Africans um, thought the game ought to have been played. And um, the, the, your book really uh, touches on a lot of things that I feel um, are parallels to, to between New Zealand as well as South Africa. Obviously, both countries are, you could say, they have a colonial history uh, or a colonial relationship with Britain. And, and both countries have this big rugby tradition of which, um, you know, the, the natives of, the, of, of the, the islanders, you can call them down, down, down under, uh, here in South Africa with black Africans have also wanted to be included in the in the rugby um, economy. And uh, I found it very, very uh, fascinating how you managed to chronicle the history, first of all, of New Zealand in the early chapters and what made New Zealanders or what created that that, that New Zealand DNA that, 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 that you write about. And, and I also found it um, a, a, a pleasure to read that you, 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 you didn't just skate over the relationship between the islanders and, and, and the New Zealanders, and you made it a key feature 
of um, of the history of New Zealand rugby. It wasn't just uh, an add-on uh, a product. Uh, so I have to commend you for that. Uh, that's that's kind of you. I appreciate that. I mean, I think uh, I'd, I'd bore in mind very closely the words of people like Sir Brian Williams in New Zealand, who said to me when he came to South Africa in 1970, he just didn't know what to expect, but he said he was blown away by the friendliness of people from all sides of the racial divide in those days. And he said it, it was something that stayed with me all my life. And I think probably what stayed with me in terms of memories of those days when I wrote this book was the fact that I came to South Africa in 1972 for the first time and I saw apartheid and I had a great friend in Johannesburg and I went around the country had a good look and I swore when I went home I would never set foot in the country again until apartheid was uh, was banished I never bought another thing from South Africa in 20 years whatever it was and the only time I came back was for the 1995 World Cup, once apartheid had been banished. And I, th I felt extremely sensitive about the deprivation of those days by the apartheid regime. And I think uh, that view was reinforced by people like uh, Sir Brian Williams in New Zealand. There are a lot of close links between New Zealand and South Africa rugby-wise, and they're very valuable indeed. Yeah, I did. I did find them very, very uh, particularly intriguing, um, and and I, I I really found that you know it's, it's it's this is one of those books that you 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 keep to reference. I, I feel like as as a sports journalist, certainly a rugby writer myself, um, it's it's one of those that I feel like I could reference in my future in my future writing and do compare comparison and. And contrast, but for the for the sake of our listeners, I want to uh, read a, a slight uh, passage um, from from the the chapter that talks about the importance of the Polynesians. I'll start it off where you talk about where you say some even thought uh, the growing introduction of island players could cost New Zealand rugby its preeminence. Alan Sutherland and All Black in 64 matches and 10 tests. From 1968 to 1978 remembers it well some people used to believe and this is Alan Sutherland speaking some people used to believe that New Zealand rugby would become a shocker under the influence of island players they thought it would weaken New Zealand there were just the occasional ones years ago BG Williams Sid going etc it was mainly thought that if there were too many of them then New Zealand rugby would suffer to be honest I always thought they lacked a bit of heart traditionally the New Zealand rugby player would dig deep, but the island players seemed to get downhearted quicker that much more. And um, you, you go on to chat to Colin Meads as well, who you say was forthright about the, the topic. And he says, it was common talk that the influence of the island players would somehow reduce the All Blacks. People said they will chuck it in if you get on top of them, but I don't see that now. They're really good players. They have been brought up with our education system. They have got good education and they are disciplined. If they are not as disciplined, they don't quite get to the All Blacks. Now, what fascinates me the most is that in South Africa, we are still living in, in that transient moment um, where mm. uh, uh, Black Africans are still very much seen with um, a lot of suspicion whether they can crack it as Springboks. It's certainly improved since 
uh, Unity, which came in 1992 um, to, 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 to 2019 today, but it's certainly not at the level where um, it, it, it's, it's, it's accepted. Uh, how, how, how do you find the comparisons uh, between the, the two nations in dealing with uh, the race relations and the acceptance of the islanders into, into the All Blacks? I think it's a fascinating topic, I really do, and I think you make some very good points there in what you've just said. I think that the, the mistake that New Zealanders made was that they looked on the negative side, and I think also there are people in South Africa today and in the last years since um, 1992 who have also looked on the negative side when they've been analysing certain players um, who are not from the traditional background. I think that we should be looking at these guys. I mean, I, I watch a lot of rugby worldwide and I watch guys in the Super Rugby Tournament and I think, wow, I'm blown over by that skill that you've just demonstrated. And I think this is what these guys can bring and they can take South African rugby further forward than it's probably ever been before. Mm. I think, though, that they will need the support of the entire population. It's no good some people sniping in the background all the time, saying, oh, well, of course, he's not as good as so-and-so would be because of this or that. That is absolute nonsense, and it's derogatory, and it's damaging, not only to the guys individually, but to the whole team. Yeah. I think South Africans have to get behind everybody who's chosen for the team. You've got to put your faith in the coach. I don't believe a guy like Rassi Erasmus is picking players he knows damn well are simply not test rugby quality. Yeah. I don't buy that. I think they are potentially tremendous players. Some of them you might say perhaps it's a year or two early, but I'll tell you what, a better year, year too early than a year or two too late. So... I think it's uh, there, there are some valuable lessons that South African rugby can learn from the New Zealand model in in that sense and what New Zealand went through. Yeah, what I, what I wish we certainly had was the Waitangi Treaty, which um, uh, the, the 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 New Zealanders um, or the settlers signed with with the natives, uh, which kind of set. Uh, into paper uh, certain agreements that uh, moving forward this is how they 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 would handle their relationship and and chief amongst uh, some of those principles of that Waitangi treaty were things like a partnership um, participation and and protection which really is a, a a respect thing and and that's where South Africa I think um, we 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 lacked a, a a bit of of respect between uh, the, the 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 various racial groups and the tribes that exist within within South Africa. So I I feel like we we still have a long way to go. Yeah, respect. You're you're right. Respect is the word. There is no question at all. If you don't have respect for fellow human beings, I'd suggest you have a problem generally. Whatever you're talking about, whether you're talking about being a member of the local council, the flower count committee, or a rugby team, respect is fundamental in every walk of life with fellow human beings. I tell you what, the world's going to be an extremely tough place to survive in if we lose respect for our fellow human beings. So that is utterly crucial and you make a very good point. Now, now New Zealand have, obviously, with the acceptance of the, the islanders, they've also benefited from the inclusion 
of um, uh, players from from the, the the Southern Islanders. You know, we've seen the, a lot of them. Uh, you you you've spoken to Jerome Kaino in the book, to Waisaki Naholo, but there's been plenty. Uh, you look at a guy like Ma Nonu, who I think is one of the one of the great rugby players I, I have seen, and um, you know, and and they so, some people in the book do admit that you know uh, they've the New Zealand uh, rugby team has benefited immensely from the inclusion of Pacific Islanders. But at the same time, New Zealand rugby has, has been pilloried in, in, in certain sectors of the media for their uh, relationship with uh, the, the island nations. It feels like there's a big brother, uh, little brother uh, relationship and, and the, they aren't growing at the same rate. Uh, how have you found that that relationship during during the research of of this book? I would say overall, it it, it was probably the most fascinating aspect of the book to me uh, that I covered. I just mm. felt that it was absolutely intriguing, and it goes back all the way back down the centuries to the times when people in the islands got into long boats and literally rowed down the South Pacific to New Zealand, the land of the long white cloud. They saw better prospects for themselves, their families and their lives if they went to New Zealand. And that process, that, that, um, uh, uh, that sort of process of, play, of people continuing to go down there has remained to this day. It's been like a sort of uh, diaspora down the, down the centuries. So I think that is important to bear in mind because it didn't start in 1980 when New Zealand rugby said, look, let's go and pull for the islands for some rugby players. That process of people coming south has been there for centuries. But having said that, there is no doubt that New Zealand did target the islands and specific players. And they had the money, they had the backing and they had the aura to do it. And I think it is a tragedy, in my view, that world rugby has done absolutely zero to help the island countries in the intervening years. Some sort of process should have been set up whereby, yes, if a player who'd, become, who'd come through the islands and trained to become a good rugby player were wanted to go to New Zealand, that was fine. You can't stop people's ambitions in the world. But That's what right. should have happened was that those countries individually should have been given some financial reward or restitution for bringing that player through and developing him to the state that New Zealand wanted him so much. World Rugby sat on its hands and did nothing about that down the years. And now I see that this World League they're talking of dreaming up for untold yeah. millions and billions has quietly excluded Fiji, Tonga and Samoa. To me, that is a modern day scandal. It, it has to be, yeah. I was, I was going to ask you about the opinions of that uh, global championship or, or whatever it's called. And I don't, what I don't really get is how the Fiji, Tonga and Samoa, um, who, who often form a Pacific Islanders team for the sake of, of trying to get some competition, something uh, like the British and Irish Lions, um, how, how, how were they left so far behind that... Uh, Japan as well as uh, Argentina overtook them in 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 joining Sansa or joining Sansa competitions in the rugby championship and and Super Rugby, even though geographically they 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 make more sense than either of those two nations. 
Well, I think it suited certain nations, uh, New Zealand included, that the status quo continue, that they could just simply go and get the best players. They could, uh, Their schools could sign Jerome Kiner and bring him over for the last couple of years of his schooling. And then the New Zealand rugby system could hone and develop his talents to the extent he became an all-black. There were loads and loads of people like him. I think nobody did anything about it because powerful unions in world rugby, in the old IRB, had the clout, had the voice to say, no, no, we don't want to change the situation. It suits us nicely. Thank you very much. And nobody, but nobody, was thinking about the future of the Pacific Island countries. A lot of these uh, nations are seriously impoverished. I mean, to listen to Waisaki Naholo talking about his humble life uh, in Fiji and the deprivations that he encountered nearly yeah. brought me to tears. It was a very, very moving testimony to his youth. And I thought something really should have been done years ago about this, but it didn't suit World Rugby and the IRB, and they did nothing about it. They just looked after each other. And that's why you find this, this enormous gap has grown up. But if you go around the world and look at all the countries and all the clubs and teams playing rugby, the number of Pacific Islanders in those teams is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, if, if only a quarter of them had stayed in the islands, mm. Fiji, Samoa and Tonga would be world powers today. They would be. I mean, look at Marco, Billy Winipola in England. Um, they, oh, there's so many to count. You look at uh, who's the Welsh uh, back rower. Yeah, Telepi well. Falatau. Latau, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, there's so many, and these are very, very gifted players. And uh, just on that note, I want to uh, borrow a little bit again from the book um, where you write that consider the story of another island player. He was contracted to the Auckland Blues during John Kerwin's era as coach from 2013 to 2015. The player, who's not named in the book, was exciting and dynamic, but he developed a problem. He turned up one morning late for training, got a warning from the coach and was apologetic. But it happened again two days later. Uh, John Cohen did what any coach would do. He dropped him from the team. An hour or so later, as he walked to his car, the coach saw a sad sight. There was the player sitting propped up against the wheel of the vehicle in the car park, bawling his eyes out. He says, he says to the coach, you just don't understand, coach. Before I came here this morning, I found out that I'd had 20,000 New Zealand dollars taken from my account. Now, this is, this is quite incredible. And, and Naholo speaks about this as well, where there's such an obligatory uh, relationship between the, the relatives that uh, he left behind uh, to, to having to uh, provide for them quite significantly, take a significant uh, portion of his earnings and um, just to provide for his family. Obviously, no one says that he must uh, cut, cut all ties, but it's certainly something, uh, for instance, like none of the other white New Zealand players will have to deal with. For None of the Barretts will have to send money back home or cut their own salaries in half, uh, for, for example. So really, the dynamic is so different in, in the teams with regards to the island players and, and the New Zealanders. Yes, it is. It's massive, massively different. And um, I, I, I can say I, I refuse to name the guy because I was told in confidence. But I can tell you that player has now 
he left Auckland, but he's playing very successfully world rugby, and he's doing very well, and he's highly respected by by his fellow players. So there was a happy way, if you like, at the end of the story. But the fact that all these guys are dependent on, or rather their families are dependent on them, explains so many of these moves around the world. A guy like Stephen Luatua, who went from the Auckland Blues to Bristol in England. Um, Fekitoa, who is with Toulon and is yeah. going to join Wasps later this year in England. These guys make no bones about it. The, the, the sums of money they were offered can offer a life, not just for them in the future, but for most of their whole family. And when you're talking about families from that part of the world, pretty often you're talking about very, very large ones. So right. what they're doing is utterly commendable. And the thought of criticising these guys is, is repugnant to me. We should be patting them on the back and saying, hey, mate, thanks for thinking of others, not just yourself. I mean, if they didn't think of their families, they could have stayed in New Zealand, lived the life of kings, a lot of money, fast cars, everything else. But they put their families first, these guys, and you won't find me criticising them for that. Yeah, and, and uh, they're still sort of... Um live the life of um you know they're on the road most of the time and they're not really settled i mean playing for toulon comes with a financial reward but murad bujala could wake up one morning and, and and embarrass you in public as he has done with the julian severe uh, so it's not certainly not not an easy life by any means it's not a it's not a cakewalk at all you you're exactly correct in what you say you've got to adapt to a lot of things particularly france with the language uh, it's a very different lifestyle and you can feel pretty lonely. And when you end up with a club that is in the mess that Toulon's in at the moment, it just compounds the problem. So these guys, as I say, have, have done it for reasons far beyond themselves and their own well-being. And that is pretty merit-worthy, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And um, yeah, we were talking a bit about the the World Championship and, and, and the mooted uh new i don't know even what to call it i don't know if it's a it's a, maybe they're trying something similar to what cricket has every uh every four years but uh before the world cup uh, which is the the uh, icc champions trophy i think i think they're looking for something like that but do you see do you see this working and if so how and and already there there's fixture congestion problems in rugby. Um, would this just add to players uh, feeling um, very? Uh, how can I put it? Uh, not not really looking forward to to the international calendar so much, and and, and maybe opting uh, to go play overseas and, and not be bound to their unions um, as 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 they normally would be. Yeah, I think you touch on something that's uh, very, very likely to happen there. I think it's all right, World Rugby, or as they as they like to call themselves now, pursuing the golden buck. But one thing they have completely forgotten is that sometimes, and this is a very old phrase, but it re- applies today as much as ever before, sometimes less is more. In other yeah. words... You keep playing more and more and more and more rugby internationals. They're going to lose all their importance. The only ones that will matter will be ones at a World Cup. The four years in between, a lot of people will start to say, 
it doesn't matter you know the all blacks are in newlands this weekend or the wallabies are coming to um to durban next weekend so what i saw them last year and they're here next year i'm not bothered about going and if world rugby isn't careful they will kill the goose that lays the golden egg because people gradually will start to say now i won't bother going i've seen these guys on television they're all over television I saw them last year, don't need to spend this money to go and watch them. And once that happens, then of course you've killed it for all time. But the people who run the game are seduced and beguiled by these vast amounts of money. There are hedge fund companies now putting, putting millions into rugby. Uh, one has bought a share of the English Premiership clubs. So the pressure on these players to play more and more games will just increase. And I think if the players have got any sense at all, they will just simply put their hands up at some stage and say, no more, because we can't take it no matter what the sums of money are involved. I mean, you've got to remember that these guys, by the time they're 28, 30, are very nearly finished internationally. It's pretty rare for them to go on beyond that. But that means they could have another 50, 60, 70 years of life ahead of them. But if their bodies are utterly shattered by the overt physicality of the game for the last 10 years, what value are they going to have in their lives? And all these factors come into the equation. They must be discussed and considered. So it's all right for the people at the top just to say, yeah, we can make another 100 million here by doing this. But sometimes you've got to look beyond the money and think of other things. Yeah, and, and, and career longevity... Um is uh is quite a it's quite a it's quite a, a, a problem for 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 a lot of the big uh unions somebody uh you know interestingly enough sent me uh, the a list of uh, career longevity for all black wingers um and uh, I'll, I'll i'll read a few of the stats i sent to visit christian callan made his debut at age 20 um and his last test uh he played at 26 years old Zach Guilford started at 20, also his last test was at 23. Doug Howlett debuted at 21, his last test was 29. Um, you go to Richard Kahui, he debuted at 23, his last test was at 26. Uh, Jonah Lomo, and he had his health uh, problems at the time, he debuted at 19, and, and um, by the time he had finished playing for the All Blacks, he was 27. And uh, this, these guys played in an era where there wasn't as much... Um, congestion uh, in the in the in the calendar can you imagine now with uh, the, the super rugby ov- already overlaps with the june uh, window the june international window here in the southern hemisphere and right after that you then resume super rugby to play the playoff stages a few weeks later you're, you're right into the rugby championship before you've even caught your breath you have to go uh, to Europe for your for your NDA tour. Now I'm I'm looking at the, the the days of the of the year and the calendar. I'm trying to figure out where is this tournament going to be able to get slotted in and where they're going to find the players. That's the problem. I guess you can always find ambitious young men who want to wear their national jersey. But I think a lot of those senior players who've already got 20, 30, 40 caps uh, or more are going to be looking at it and saying just what you've said. I don't, we don't see a gap here. We don't see how all this can be done. I mean, already they, they seem to be ignoring the fact that the, the players of uh, countries like England and France are contracted by their clubs. The clubs want their piece slice of action from them. 
So you can't fit all these things into one equation. It's just simply impossible. Something has to give. And I would suggest the first thing that ought to be considered is the player's health and welfare. But nobody seems to be bothering about that at all. Yeah, it, it, it appears not. And uh, there's definitely uh, a, a, an out-of-kilter relationship between world rugby and the rest of the world. It's, it's, it's almost as if they're, they're watching a different sport to the rest of us. Um, I, I want to move on, though, to the the, the, the the lovely conversations you've had and the and the brilliant chapter you had on, on the All Blacks coach, Steve Hansen, who is a character that really fascinates me more than more than a lot of um, world leaders uh, in, 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 in rugby at the moment, perhaps even uh, all sports. I, I think he's the kind of figure that transcends rugby, um, perhaps probably transcends sports itself. He's one of the guys I'll sit in, in, in a masterclass or TEDx talk and just listen to him and his views on, on, on how to manage people and, and how, to, how to basically lead. And uh, one, one of the great things I, I found about him was his ability to uh, rise from, from adversity. Uh, the fact that he lost 19 out of 29 tests as Welsh coach after replacing Graham Henry and still be trusted enough by Graham Henry to be part of the New Zealand setup once uh, he took over there and, 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 and be part of the continuity that then ensued, which led to the kind of juggernaut that we're dealing with um, today. Uh, how did you find um, Steve Hansen's spirit when you sat down with him on, on the multiple occasions that you did uh, in, in, in compiling this book? I found him, above all, a fascinating character. And there's no question that with Steve, what you see is not necessarily what you get. He's not a guy who is just sort of uh, four square and up front and, and that's it. He, he'll be up front in terms of telling players what he wants. No, no fear about that. But there's yeah. an awful lot more to Steve Hansen behind the scenes. I mean, his love of uh, his, uh, his horses, his love of the country life, his love of his family, they're not things necessarily he, he enjoys talking about because he considers them off-limit for his rugby duties. But I wanted to find out more about the guy and about his relationship with his parents. He learned so much from his father, who was a very wise and erudite coach in his time yeah. in rugby. And I think he was certainly one of the most interesting people I'd, I came across in New Zealand and, and I worked with for this period of time. He was. He really was. He's got an awful lot more to him than just rugby football. He can converse about a lot of things. But above all else, I felt he's a guy who cares about human beings. He cares about the world and he cares about people, young men in his charge. He acknowledges that he's got to do things the right way and he wants to do things the right way. I mean, when, he, when, when a player is dropped, he's not told by the team manager... Steve Hansen sits him down and says, listen, son, this is the way it is. I'm sorry, but we're going to go without you this week because... And he'll tell him what he wants. And the guy can go away if he wants to and work on it. And I think that is uh, commendable stuff. I think it's, it's fundamental if you really want your players to go out and bust a gut for you. They have to buy into this code of respect both ways. And Hansen exudes that. Yeah, and... and um... The fact that he uh, took over from the success 
that that Graham Henry achieved and and went on to do even greater things it was the most incredible uh thing I, I i found is he the kind of guy that is perhaps un unflustered or not overawed by responsibility big responsibility it's one thing taking an all blacks team to the world cup and hoping to win the world cup it's another taking over from a person that's actually won it um i find uh, for my view that that would have been probably uh, the most difficult challenge is how then do we not regress how do how do i not mess this up yeah i think that's right it's never easy following success is it because inevitably you'd think after success the team will decline but steve has got his own standards he's got his own skill set in terms of how he deals with people and he's got his own demands um i don't imagine that those players who were still in the all black camp after the 2011 world cup win turned up at the start of the next four-year cycle and thought, oh, gee, this is boring, different coach, but exactly the same message. Steve isn't like that. He brings a freshness to it. And all the time, he's not only challenging his players, he's challenging himself. He says, I want to come up with new ways of doing things. I look at other sports and I think a lot about it. He's always challenging himself and that's what he wants to do with his players. So I think he's a, he's a very fascinating, complex character and a, a key strut, no question, a key man in the whole successful story of the All Blacks in recent times. Yeah, his record is, is unbelievable. I think he borders on the 90% win rate. Um, as all their coach, uh, he holds a record for the most uh, consecutive wins, I think. And uh, obviously winning the World Cup, winning so many rugby championships on the trot um, has just been incredible. But I, I, I want to cut to a, uh, a, a segment in the book that spoke about the business of rugby. And I'm going to localize it again uh, just to accommodate uh, our South African audience. Um, and there were a lot of South African references in the book because of the relationship we have. Uh, and will continue to have, I hope, um, in the future. I want to skip to the part where Steve Hansen speaks about South Africa and he says, um, Steve Hansen insisted in uh, mid-2017 that South Africa uh, would be strong enough opposition for the All Blacks if they picked their best team. Um, he says, it's whether the country wants to fix the problem. They are the only team in sport that I know that doesn't pick its best team. I understand what they're trying to do, but Nelson Mandela understood it better than anyone else. He knew that the Springboks was a team that could unite the nation. I still believe it is if you've got the right things going and you are allowed to develop it naturally. You would get the right people in the team and in the end it would be a multicultural team. Rugby wasn't a black man's sport, but it was the sport that would unify the country in a way that no other sport or business could. Now I think that unity isn't there so much. As a nation, it has got such a lively history and it has created a whole lot of things we will never understand because we were never part of it. And just on, on, that, on that note, I do agree um, partly with what Steve says, but what I, I, I disagree with is a bit that um, the rugby wasn't a, a, a black man's sport. I think that narrative was sold by the apartheid government uh, so well to the rest of the world that, you know, when 95 happened, it seemed as if that's only when 
like people started playing rugby, which is untrue. There's there are black uh, rugby clubs in South Africa that are older than some uh, traditionally Afrikaner rugby clubs in in the country, and um, uh, and he's been uh, pilloried in the media before uh, for his comments on on the South African political dynamic. Is it something you probed him on, or did he or did he come out and 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 just say it? No, I, I talked to him um, when the All Blacks were in Newlands um, in uh, Cape Town playing uh, uh, during that week, in fact, when they were going to play the box at, at Newlands. And I, I wanted to get his thoughts on it. I, I hear what you say, and, and sure, that is the reality. But I, I think what Steve was trying to say was, if you let these things develop of their own volition, their own will, he said, I think you will get there anyway. You'll find that it will it will happen. It will get there without perhaps forcing it too much. And maybe, um, I don't know, you'd be a better person to comment on this than me, but maybe my impression has been in the past, in the early years, that there was a rush to try to make transformation succeed overnight. And I think in certain cases, it just failed abysmally uh, with certain individuals. Um, that was a pity because I'm sure all these guys were so determined and so keen and so proud to wear that jersey. But for whatever reason, they couldn't sustain it over a period of time. And as I said, Steve, I think, was making the point that if you have patience in this process, no, it can't happen by tomorrow morning. But in time it will and it'll happen naturally and it'll be a lot stronger for that. Yeah, I think I think the the big failure was the the, the suspicion from both sides that just persisted um, over the last couple of decades, and no one really uh, put a process together. I think we lacked a, a process that everyone could believe in. Um, when 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 Steve talks about trusting the process, you know, there there really was no process. Every every leadership administrator or leadership group that has come and administered rugby in this country has always come in with a new with a new plan rendering maybe mm. a, a previous five-year or ten-year plan redundant and we've yes. had to start from the beginning which has caused a lot of frustration from both sides uh, where you know uh, a lot of black people in the country say yeah no but the, the rugby is not transforming and then on the side of white people they say yeah but you, you have to select on merit and and it's caused a lot of uh, of, of division uh, instead if, if if originally there was a, a process a plan that everyone agreed on and 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 there was there were deadlines obviously and timelines and certain milestones that needed to be uh, met at, at particular points I think it would have been much easier for all of us to say hey guys remember let's let's, let's trust this plan. Uh, let's stick to the plan and see how it develops. But unfortunately, we never had that. We've had 10, 15, 20 different plans for the same thing. And, and here we are, 2019, with, with certain targets that have been put down for us, Erasmus, for the World Cup or for this year. And again, it's, it's caused angst all over. Yeah, I'm sure that's the case. And they're wise words. You're right. Uh, you've got to have a plan. You must have a formula. If you don't have that, you just have people thrashing about in the dark and with concomitant results. Uh, but I think you've put it very well there. I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, what I do also admire is as much as 
New Zealand have um, taken some of the talented uh, players from the, the the Islanders and brought them into their schools. I think that just the investment to know that it starts at school level and not, you know, and not at all black level. They don't just take the biggest kid you can find out of Samoa and 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 put them straight through to the All Blacks. They 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 believe that in order for that kid to succeed, they have to go through. The, the the entire system uh, the the elementary system if I can put it like that and 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 bring them into the schools and let them graduate um, from there uh, again it's it's it, it, it happens in South Africa but it's it's hit and miss uh, a lot I mean it, it, it I'd say with a guy maybe like with a Sia Colisi who's a current Springbok captain it will work um, but there are a lot of players where uh, they'll fall by the wayside, even though they've gone to to these great prestigious rugby schools. Yeah, I, I hear what you say, but the only thing I the, the, the only thing I would say is I, I think it, it it encourages me hugely that in a way the South African system is very closely aligned to the New Zealand system. You're right, what you say. They don't just take a kid from Samoa because he's 24 stone and say, right, son, you're playing for the All Blacks. He's got to go through that school process and learn the schools and all and understand all the basics there. But I think when you look at the quality of schools in this country and the potential uh, of ability that's coming out of them in a sports sense, I think that is a hugely encouraging thing for South Africa. I'm sure you're right in saying there hasn't been a process that's been strong enough, a structure sufficiently robust in the past. But if you can address that, I don't see a situation where South African sports fans are saying, oh, there's no talent coming out of the schools. I cannot imagine that scenario at any stage in the future. There is so much ability in all sorts of uh, sports. So I think if you can get the structure and then bolt it onto this school, ability of the schools to bring people through, that could be of, of huge and lasting benefit to South African rugby and indeed all sports in South Africa. Yeah, uh, and just to wrap up our, our, our great conversation, Peter, um, what was your your favorite part of, of, of doing this this book? Uh, being an author myself, I know there there are some parts I would I wish I could offload to someone else. You know, the overload of information, the the leaving things out that you think oh, I don't know if that's important or not important. You know, um, it definitely comes with its challenges. But what was what was the part that really made it worthwhile a worthwhile exercise for you? I think, I mean, I could tell you, I could answer that in the obvious way. Oh, the interview I did with, for instance, Richie McCaw it wasn't easy to set up because Richie had moved on in his life and he wanted to um, move away from rugby. So I think the idea of sitting down talking rugby for another hour with another overseas journo was probably anathema to him, but he agreed to do it. And when he did, he was fantastic. We had about an hour and a half together and he could not have been more helpful or nicer. But having said that, that, that's the easy answer. I'd say overall though, the greatest memory I will take from this is dealing with the ordinary people of New Zealand, people who just threw, threw you a meal because they said, look, uh, hey, let's go and talk rugby. Come on, I'll, I'll buy you dinner. And, and mm. they'd invite you into their homes and you'd talk rugby and they'd, they'd, you'd meet their families and all these sort of people. It didn't have to be from the Auckland Blues or from the Hurricanes in Wellington. I went to some tiny, tiny country clubs where there were just about 
three or four people around propping up a deserted bar, but you'd start talking rugby and they could not have been nicer, more friendly or more welcoming. And I think that was a great part of the book. I absolutely loved that fact. I still think for me, the 2011 World Cup in New Zealand personally was the best one because again, I saw so many great people in New Zealand and spent so much time with them. And they made you feel so welcome, so, so welcoming to everybody from overseas. So I guess that would be the, the abiding memory that I'll take from the book, the fantastic people. And at the end of the day, let's face it, any country is made by the people. This country, South Africa, has some fantastic people, wonderful, friendly people from all backgrounds. And that's what makes it to me the great country that it is and will be in the future. So that would probably be the answer. Ah, fabulous. Um, I, have to, I have to commend you again for uh, the, the excellent uh, work that you did in putting this, this book together. I think the easy way out would have been to pick a character, pick maybe a Maanonu, even Steve Hansen himself, and, 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 and write uh, a biography or, or ghostwrite an autobiography. But to, to go uh, and, and research uh, the, the entire, uh, you know, the entire thing, you know, what, what really drives the all black rugby from the bottom right to the top, I think uh, you've uh, totally um, outdid yourself, Peter. That's very kind of you. I really appreciate that from you, mate. I really do. It's very kind of you and great to talk to you. Yeah. Fabulous chat with Peter Bills uh, for the Bulbs cast. Uh, thanks very much, Peter. Once again, he is the author of The Jersey, The Secrets Behind the World's Most Successful Team. Do go out and buy the book. It's doing very, very well in South Africa. And obviously, globally, there will be a lot of interest in this. It's also a collector's item. That I think it's one of those you will have to reference uh, whenever you get into either a, a trivia question and you want to get your answers uh, as well as to get your background and research knowledge. I, as a sports journalist and a rugby writer myself, is one that I will keep very, very close on the top shelf of my collection. Thanks again, Peter, for joining us. This is the Bob's Cast. Otherwise, you will. <laughs>